The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. Lord, we do again also just want to affirm that which we've uh, sung and declared as a church body is the truths that we've um, affirmed through singing, that we've affirmed through praying. We are mindful of your excellencies, and we're mindful that we know such things because you've been pleased to reveal them to us. And with that comes the stewardship, the responsibility to uh, respond in kind, to walk in joyful obedience, to be worshipers, and to submit our lives in holiness and faith and faithfulness to you. And we thank you that uh, you've given us means for that. We think back on last week with uh, the, the necessary means to walk in trials in a way that is, are pleasing to you and to, to be joyful amidst such things or to have a joyful valuation of them. It requires wisdom and that you generously give wisdom. And so we want to look to you with a proper confidence. We want to know that you will provide and to, to conduct ourselves in submission and, and faith accordingly to the fact that you give wisdom. You give it generously and single-mindedly and without reproach. And we thank you for... Um, even as we anticipate uh, the, the engagement with the scriptures today, I just think about the command now to, to boast in, in weakness and bo- boast in humility and, and, and humble disposition and just thinking about the nature of um, laboring and struggling with the text. And it's such a, a peculiar engagement week in and week out because it's a straightforward text. It hasn't changed from week to week. And yet um, there's a work that has to happen. There's a and entrusting of ourselves to, to the labor of study, to the labor of prayer, to the labor of um, seeking that you would be our teacher. And so I thank you that that process is challenging and that it yields sweet fruits, but that you use the challenging dynamic of that to, to humble us. And in humility, we can now boast that you've been pleased to, to return sweet fruits of insight and understanding and now we ask for the grace to, to do what you've made plain. And so part of that doing will be me um, drawing things out, helping uh, the, this family here to, to see and understand and for us all to hear and to respond. So we ask that you be our help in that process as well, and that we would be humble in our approach to that, to that not, to, not just to presume that because we've worked hard and want to understand these things or have a cognitive ability, Lord, we want to submit ourselves to you. We need your help. And... and and you providing help, may we, again, submit ourselves in obedience, boasting not in ourselves, but in you and your kindness. We thank you for the church in Rwanda. We thank you that uh, the likelihood of us um, meeting um, many uh, in that context is, is, is less likely. But the fact is, if we did, if we, if we came across a believer from Rwanda, or if we traveled to Rwanda and visited a local church, that is, that is family. They're every bit um, a part of the body of Christ is, is one of us here, and there's a sweetness to that, that you have your people all over this world, and they're declaring your excellencies and affirming truth and striving also to, to labor to understand and to walk in obedience, and we do pray that you'd strengthen them and help them. Thank you that the church has been growing even since the, the terrible um, tragedy and uh, wickedness of men was put on display some almost 30 years ago now, but you've, you've used these things. You've used your church to bring reconciliation. You've used your church to maintain a measure of peace. And so I thank you for that and pray that you would continue to strengthen them and find them faithful. Um, there's trials I, I, I'm confident that are associated with 
the, the enduring impact of that. There's trials with just seeking to walk well. So please give them wisdom and, and find them faithful and pleasing to you and help us to be faithful on their behalf as we labor for them in prayer um, throughout this week and give attention to the matters of special concern and special attention that surrounds their circumstances. We're mindful of also those who are not able to be here with us. We think about uh, the dynamics that have uh, produced that, some of them favorable, less, some less favorable from um, opportunities um, that are um, of interest to sickness to um, assisting those that we love. And so we, we pray that you would give them all help as they're um, in different parts of the country, even parts of the world. Uh, may they be found faithful and walk in joyful obedience to you as they submit themselves to you. And may we all love one another. We think about the Duvals and the opportunity to, to rejoice with them. We're mindful of um, they're not being able to, to be here, but we're able to, to join them in celebratory thanks for the years of marriage that they've enjoyed and the testimony that that provides. So Lord, we thank you for this, um, this church body. We thank you for um, even those who come to visit, again, a representation of your larger church body, an opportunity to worship and walk together and to rejoice um, and, and our sweetness of fellowship for those that we will see week to week and those that we will see in passing. And now, Lord, would you be pleased to be our help? Um, as I've already mentioned, you've, you've been our help in the process of bringing us here and preparing us. Um, help us now to, to hear your word and to submit ourselves to it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this morning we'll be continuing our work in this uh, first major section of James's letter. So we've divided the book up, and we don't just arbitrarily divide it up. We don't just make outlines so that we have a weekly structures. That wouldn't really even be necessary. I'd prefer that on some levels because then I could just dictate week to week, you know, what chunk we'll take on or what favorable position. But we we went and we we struggled with James. We tried to understand James, and we look to see how does the how does an outline yield from the text and it's not necessarily that James when he set out to write his letter said well here's point one point two point three but there's an intentionality to it and especially with James we we mentioned the fact that he he's received some undue criticism that he just peppers in truths and isn't that nice and he gives us truisms and little nuggets of wisdom but I think if anything, today what we're going to continue to see is there's a clear intentionality to how he's developing arguments and how he's developing themes and how he would want us to progressively work through this letter. And so we're going to be continuing in this first major section, and we've titled this section Foundations for Wisdom's Path to Perfection. And this first section, as it were, spans from chapter 1, verses 2 through 15. We didn't forget verse 1. Verse 1 was was James's introduction. Um, that's a, a very plain introduction in the sense of who he was, a slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, and who he wrote to. And then he just starts. And so we have verses 2 through 15 constitute our first major section of the book. And we've broken this into four subsections, each having a really a capacity to stand alone. We, we talked about last week how one of the dangers of uh, breaking up uh, a section into subsections is that you might miss the connections. And so two weeks ago, I exhorted it and called you to the, the command to consider it all joy, and then I left you there. Consider it all joy when you walk through various trials, when you experience various trials, but it wasn't until the next week that you would be commanded to ask for wisdom because we need wisdom. And that's the danger, isn't it, with breaking things up into subsections. That was a really important part. We needed wisdom two weeks ago, but it wasn't until last week that I directed you to it. But the good news is you have a copy of James, and you can always 
work through it and read through it, and I'd encourage you to do that. But here we are in these subsections, and again, each having really a capacity to stand alone while also directly contributing to James's. He's building an argument, and by argument, it's not antagonistic. It's a flow of thought directing us to a conclusion. And it's a matter that I hope is becoming increasingly clear as we advance to the culmination of the first section next week. And so we're in the third of four sections, and he's going to finish it off next week for us. But to present, though, we've covered, as I've mentioned, verses two through four, and we titled that section A Joyful Valuation. And in this first subsection, we were provided with a that primary command, again, as I've mentioned, and, and a supporting command. So the primary command was, again, consider it all joy. Make a valuation. Come to a determination that this is all joy. Specifically, we're commanded to consider not only the, the prospect, but the reality that our faith will be ambushed by various trials. It's not that, you know, things happen. No, these are assaults on our faith, and they're going to challenge both our conclusions and conduct and our experiences and our joy. And so we're to experience and express those things to evaluate them as all joy. And then the supporting command was let perseverance have its perfect work. So we're to persevere through these trials by way of expressing a righteous confidence and conduct, knowing that in such a maturing work is, uh, is at work within us, uh, a maturing work expressed as making us perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. And so it's a really encouraging entry point to this first section. And then last week, we covered verses 5 through 8, which we titled a, a confident request for wisdom, a request that was not encouraged, but commanded of us by James. So he, he starts it off, if any of you lacks wisdom, and the structure of the grammar there is, if any of you lacks wisdom, and you do, and that wasn't an insult to us, that wasn't uh, provoking us to be like, well, thanks a lot, James, I, I don't know how to handle various trials. He, he expects that. There, these trials are of a, a nature that we don't know what they're going to be, the weight, the consequence, the impact, or otherwise. And so he says, call to God, cry out to God, request for wisdom. And he gives it generously, but do so in faith. Because, again, we naturally lack the necessary wisdom to, to persevere well through our various trials. And so it's expected of us that we petition the Lord for the wisdom that comes from above. Again, that's how James frames wisdom in this book, it's the wisdom that comes from above. And with this command, there was the supporting or clarifying command, qualifying how we must ask, in faith and doubting nothing. So it's not just ask and, you know, kind of tossing it out there, Lord, I, you know, I hope you'll give me wisdom. It's ask in faith. And again, that's not an encouragement, not a suggestion. It was a, a supporting command. This, you are to ask, and you are to ask in this way, in faith. And this section also included a, a third imperative that served as a potentially corrective rebuke for the, the one who fails to heed the qualifying command. James stated that the one who fails to ask in faith or that introduces doubting into his petition for the, for the wisdom that comes from above is to expect that he will receive no generous provisions of wisdom to negotiate their trials well. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all his ways. And that third command, that third imperative, I didn't really develop it as strongly as I will this week in terms of the, the counterpart in our section, partly because I think there's some clarity to it just from struggling with the text this week, that why does he give that kind of command, expect nothing? What kind of command is that? Well, I see it now as more of a, a restorative rebuke, that if you, if you don't heed the command to ask, and if you don't heed the command to specifically ask in faith, then you need to know, this is a corrective command, that you'll receive nothing. 
So know that, you recognize that. And it prods us, doesn't it, to recognize, wow, this is, this is not the position I want to be in. And that brings us to our third section. We're coming to the third subsection covering verses 9 through 11. And we'll title this section, The Call to Boast and Humility. A section that initially may appear to be a really kind of a sidebar or matter of special attention, which James will return to from uh, when he's finishing out this larger emphasis for this section. But as we will see, it is a, it's itself a clear component to the whole of this section. So again, you might read commentators, you might hear Bible students, you might see a variety of things, and it is a measure of frustration because we love James and his development of argument. And I would see over and over again, well, now he's going to return to perseverance. Now, I want you to see that this is building perseverance, that, that he's not saying, this is how you persevere. This is how you evaluate it. Oh, let's talk about rich and poor. This is how you come back to perseverance. He's, he's locked in on it. He's developing an argument. So it's a section that we'll conclude next week, not having returned to it, but having continued to develop it. And next week, we'll see a culminating view to perseverance's great reward. And with this, a view to uh, the weight of it. This is a matter of life and death. This isn't a, boy, hope you persevere well. There's things that are favorable but James frames it in the severity of the contrast. There's been different contrast in this next one that we'll see next week is a matter of quite literally life and death. Now, having the elements of this first section framed for you, we're going to read the whole of it together, verses 2 through 15, as we prepare to focus our attention on both the immediate subsection of verses 9 through 11 and its introduction of a major thematic emphasis within the book, a matter that we're going to give significant attention to this morning, as we'll see in a moment here. But we're going to go ahead and read together James chapter 1, verses 2 through 15. James writes, Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith brings about perseverance. And let perseverance have its perfect work, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith, doubting nothing, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But the brother of humble circumstances is to boast in his high position, and the rich man is to boast in his humiliation. Because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching heat and withers the grass and it flowers falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully matured, it brings forth death. Now, as I stated, we'll be focusing on the third subsection of verses 9 through 11 today, where James provides us a, another firm contrast with a view to perseverance, this time by way of contrasting the brother of humble circumstances and the rich man. Both are, are commanded to boast, which is a, a peculiar command. He's already given us a number of commands that we, we pause and, okay, it's a command inspired by the Spirit of God, so it's a good one. To, to, to evaluate, to, to conclude that trials are context for joy, um, to ask in a certain way, 
And now to boast? Well, he's commanded us to boast. The humbler to boast in their high position. Again, that itself appears the contrary, but the humbler to boast in their high position and the rich in their humiliation. And I'll be arguing that James is framing the humble or the poor as believers and the rich as unbelievers who through this command are receiving a potentially restorative rebuke just as we saw with the double-minded man in the prior section. Um, a conclusion that certainly has its challenges. Uh, it's one of the most divided challenges that uh, I've run into in my study of James. There's a lot of different opinions about who this rich man is and uh, how do we understand him. And there's immediate context, there's larger context, there's all kinds of things that factor into it. And don't worry, I resolved it last night. So um, I was very, very encouraged by that. I, I literally came to this with a, I'm confident and I have one small hole in my argument. But that's okay because they have holes in theirs too, and their holes are bigger than my holes. And, but it got resolved, and so I want you to see that resolution. So uh, again, a conclusion that it'll have its challenges, particularly in view of what appears to be a, a shared command to persons in, in strikingly different circumstances. The, the, the believing poor and the wealthier, the rich, un, unbelieving. And there's some reconciliation that happens there, and there's satisfaction in those commands if we, if we heed them. And again, this is among the reasons also that it's so important to have a view to the book as a whole. I would not have resolved uh, the tension that uh, people come to. And they, it's not an arrogance that, well, you know, there's this side, there's this side. Well, thank goodness I figured it out. No, we struggle with the text, right? We, we wrestle through it. And part of that process is to have a view to the book as a whole. If we just looked at verses 9 through 11, we're missing things. And we don't want to do that. So we have to look to the book as a whole, including its themes and structural development, while also giving attention to sections and subsections. So in view of that, in my study, I have the, the whole of the book of James written on the wall. And so some of you might think, well, that's a kind of a permanent commitment to James, isn't it? It's, um, it's whiteboard paint. And so it's, it's there for, for now. And then when we um, one day move along, hopefully it won't be embedded in there from being in James too long. But it's all there. So I can look at it. I can see the whole of James. I can, I've read the book and listened to the book and written out things from the book, written out the whole book enough where I can just look at the book and know kind of where I am and, and see the geography of it and, and see the layout and the argument and, and even consult the details. But I want a big picture constantly in front of me because I'm a, I'm a detail, tight, focused guy. So I have the whole of the book on the wall. I want to, again, have a constant view to its full unit, not lose sight of these smaller details fitting into a well-structured argument by James. I also have the major themes and structural breakdowns, um, an outline posted where I can plainly see and consult them. So things that we addressed in introduction where it's like that chart was up there for just long enough to know that the guy likes charts. Well, I don't just like them. They're, they're my friends. They, they accompany me on this journey because I want to be mindful. What are these themes and, and how are they developed and how does James develop his structure and, and how do we fit these things together? And I want to maintain an appreciation of how these details weave together and operate in complementary fashion throughout the book. And I'm sharing that not just to belabor my personal study habits. Um, I'm not going to impose on you what I've imposed upon myself. It, it's hard enough being me. You, there doesn't need to be more of me. So, but I share that because the conclusions I've come to for this relatively small portion of the book, verses 9 through 11, are intimately informed by views to the whole of the book. We didn't just focus on 9 through 11. We would have missed something. So we, we have a view to the whole of the book. And while the thematic emphasis of this section as a whole 
is uh, on the weaving together of, of perseverance and perfection and wisdom. So we see those operating in concert together, and that's really the, the larger emphasis. I also had to give attention to the fact that James also introduces another thematic emphasis today, and it will serve as a, I would say, a critically important element to this subsection's development of the larger focus of perseverance. So the focus, ultimately, of 2 through 15, perseverance, by what means, um, or what does it accomplish? Well, it accomplishes that you be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing, and what is the means for this persevering work? It's wisdom from above, but here he's introduced a Another major theme that's going to complement that. And this new thematic emphasis is James's development of rich and poor. And when I was going through major themes in the introduction, uh, I don't know, I didn't probably give it as much attention knowing I would give it more attention later. And it might be like, rich and poor, how does that fit? I mean, we have faith, we have works, we have wisdom, we have perseverance, all those major themes, that makes sense. But, but rich and poor? I think you're going to see that it really does have a, a clear component to James's larger arguments in the book. So it's a subject that he could be really even accused of speaking to with maybe even a heavy bias. Uh, we all approach things with a certain perspective, as it were, but I think that uh, someone that's not intimately familiar with the book of James, they could s approach it, give it a cursory reading, and say, boy, this guy's a really out-of-balance bias. Uh, perhaps one, maybe it was informed by his experiences and leadership within the Jerusalem church. I know that my past experiences introduce bias and preference and thoughts. And when, so what are James's experience? Well, he was, he was in leadership within the Jerusalem church, the early Jerusalem church. And, but really, to, to, in, to impute that on James is a conclusion that I would say would be short-sighted. It, it's neglecting to appreciate that he is speaking firmly but broadly. So he comes down hard on the rich, and he comes down almost incredibly gently on the poor. But that's not because he's out of balance. It's not because we had some experiences, but because he's speaking broadly. He's introducing principles. He is um, expressing common principles and it, uh, that are informed by experiences that he draws from. But he gives uh, measures of qualification. He draws from the fact that he's operating as a mature believer, leading in Christ's church and writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. So was he informed and, and, and was he uh, impacted by things? Yes. But that doesn't mean he's an out-of-balance bias. And it's going to sound like that for a little bit because of how strongly he speaks about things. So was he influenced? Again, yes. Uh, by a range of experiences, without a doubt. I mean, he was in the early Jerusalem church. So we know things that, in terms of uh, socioeconomic and rich and poor matters, that that factored in. He was he was present for the what we we really celebrate the expressions of sacrificially giving to one another as each had need. He saw that. So he saw when there was needs that the church sacrificed and generously gave to the point we look back at that in almost in a romantic fashion and say, oh, that was that was the glory days, as it were. And and he was there. He lived through that, walked through it, participated. He would have heard about. Things like Peter and John going to the temple and expressing they had neither silver or gold to offer the beggar, but uh, rather restored his broken body. So he would have, he would have had a, a vantage point, a thought on, okay, what, what do we value? Do we value silver or gold, or do we value the fact that uh, the Lord can not only do a redemptive work, but even miraculous works? And so he would, have, he would have certainly thought about things like that. He would have known of Barnabas's generous gifts. So we were very familiar with Barnabas, but we're introduced to him because he gives a generous gift to the church. That's when we first meet Barnabas, and he would have known of that, and then he would have also known of the shameful embarrassment of Ananias and Sapphira and their offense in economic matters where they had and withheld and lied. And over time, 
whether before, during, or after the writing of this letter, he would have been intimately familiar with the needs for fiscal support among the Jerusalem believers. So he would have been very familiar with those who were of humble circumstances, who were poor, needy. Uh, you look at a lot of Paul's writing to other churches, it, no small part measure, uh, no small measure of attention is support the Jerusalem church, care for the Jerusalem church. There was, there's a lot of need there. And so he inevitably would have known about that. So a support generously supplied by other believers beyond the city. And while all these matters certainly would have informed and influenced his thinking, they plainly did not embitter James, though. So don't, don't fall into this. Well, boy, he, he just doesn't have, and so he's kind of frustrated with those who do. That's not what he's getting at. He's not embittered toward the wealthy, or, or um, he's not trying to even provoke a morbid elev elevation of the poor. He speaks very firmly about these matters, but he speaks very broadly to accomplish and to press us towards something. So while some could take these matters and manipulate the messages that come from James as, and, and even frame them as, well, let's look at them from a social or political causes, James processed them as a mature believer, again, as a leader in Christ's church and as one who went on to write his own contribution to the subject under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, not with an agenda and not informed by bias or embitterment or otherwise. And he gives this subject of rich and poor, again, significant attention and with what perhaps could be viewed maybe as a measure of bias balance because it carries over from the temporal to the spiritual. And that's where his emphasis is. So if he's got a bias, it's because these bigger pictures reflect something beyond the temporal. But in as much as there is that uh, shift of emphasis and bias on any measure, it's one that has spiritual overtones and not one caught up again in socioeconomic concerns for their own sake. Rather, it sees their spiritual impact on the individual, such as in our passage today, 9 through 11, focuses on the individual, uh, brother of humble circumstance and the rich, and the local faith community, which he goes on to talk about in chapter 2 and 4 and 5, which is, again, further developed in this letter. So with this in view, I'm going to, to ask you to walk with me as I draw out this thematic emphasis of rich and poor. I've kind of kind of taken a while to set it up, but let me go ahead and ask, let, let's walk with each other as we examine James's engagement of rich and poor within the letter, and then even a bit beyond. And the reason we're going to go beyond is because the beyond influenced James, as we'll see as well, so that you'll better appreciate it as it comes to the fore or the front of a given passage, and to understand why we come to the conclusions that we have in our passage today regarding, again, who are the poor and who are the rich. Because that, again, major point of division, major point of struggle, and part of understanding that is, how does James talk about these people? Does it matter? Absolutely. What's the bigger picture? Perseverance. But he wants us to understand the rich, the poor, his perspective, so that we better understand the calls and commands to persevere and specifically to be boasting. And so let's look at that together. We'll start here, um, verse 1 of James. Um, to begin, I've really... I've expanded my original thematic approach to rich and poor. I didn't originally have uh, verse 1, but I've included it here because, um, not necessarily because uh, it, it's a socioeconomic matter. James identifies himself as a slave, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, he's not framing his, his vantage point in thinking of slavery with a, a socioeconomic position but on account of the humility that accompanies the identification of a slave. That is of a like nature to the humility expressed by the poor or humble throughout the book. And that's something I want you to see the relationship to. When you see poor, it's not, oh, those, those sad folks, they don't have anything. It's a view to the humility that accompanies that. 
And that's the disposition of a slave. So I've introduced it there. And then the next reference to rich and poor comes in our passage today, chapter 1, verse 9, where James addresses believers who are poor. And we conclude that they are believers because he refers to them as brothers, the brothers of humble circumstance. And we've identified them as poor on account of those of humble circumstances plainly being used in contrast to those who are rich. So the brothers of humble circumstance and then the rich. So they are poor in this context. Then, in the immediately following verses, 10 and 11, James speaks to the rich, and their identity is a matter of no small, again, debate among Bible teachers, commentators, specifically, are they believers? Does that matter? I do believe it matters because he's engaged and he's developing an argument, so we're going to try to struggle with that. And again, this debate is ultimately framed by your understanding of the command as well as the immediate and larger context. So how does James command, if it is a believer, why would he command the rich believer to to be humble in this way, and then talk about them like he does in a very almost condescending way. But if they're unbelievers, why is he giving a command to boast and what's their destruction? And so it is challenging. We're going to frame that context as we continue to advance through this. Then we come to the end of the first chapter, where in verse 27, the humble or needy person's character appears to be neutral, as uh, the emphasis is simply on one's response of caring for them. So he doesn't really give us any uh, moral vantage point. He just basically introduces those who are in need. And so sometimes poor are identified as those who were living in a certain condition and it's been diminished. And so that naturally happens to orphans and widows. And so they would definitely fit the category of the poor, but he doesn't speak to their condition, just speaks to how will you engage them. Then in verses uh, two, uh, chapter two, verses one through four, the same could be presumably said of the two characters in the opening verses of chapter two, where it's not a matter of their own respective identities or conduct. It's not about their standing. It doesn't matter what the nature of their character is so much as how one responds to them joining the company of the local fellowship. How will you respond to the poor? How will you respond to the wealthy? So again, they're morally neutral in that example. But then we get to vi- uh, chapter 2, verses 5 to 7, and here we have in the correcting of bad behavior from that example, these respective persons' reception Uh, James speaks broadly of the type of persons commonly represented by the poor and the rich of this world in these verses. And now that's going to give us a unique insight to his larger perspective and larger treatment of these two categorical persons. And here James writes, Listen, my beloved brothers, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith? And now don't be like, well, yeah, he chose the spiritually, the poor in this world, those who are lacking and less, to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him. And then we have the contrast, but you've dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and then and they themselves drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the good name by which you have been called? So you can start to see why people could accuse James when well, he's introducing bias and he certainly has a strong perspective on these things because broadly speaking, James has proposed that God has chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. That's a very high valuation of a group of people, but it's a very broad valuation that he's introducing. And broadly speaking, James has proposed that the rich are more likely to leverage their privilege to abuse believers through the courts and in their own blaspheming of Christ. So again, Though speaking generically, these verses in chapter 2 may be providing some insight into how James is framing these larger categories of persons. Next, I would direct our attention to the end of chapter 4, where in verses 13 through 17, 
James rebukes the arrogance of presumptuous persons, specifically for their making plans without a humble view to God. But it's the terms and tone of the whole of the chapter of uh, chapter four that appears to lend themselves to a possible view back to our passage in chapter one. And though I'm not prepared to make this conclusion too firmly just yet, we'll, we'll get to chapter four. We'll see how strongly it looks back to chapter one. I still want to note the following. So I don't have this up on the screen, but you have it in your copy of the scriptures in chapter four, verse six. We have a reference to the favor of the humble. So again, there's a clear uh, deference to the humble. Verse Chapter 4, verse 8, we have the only other reference to the double-minded man. And you might think, well, okay, but that's the only other reference we have to the double-minded man. And so he's clearly carrying some thoughts over from chapter 1 to chapter 4. And then verse 10, we again have a reference to the humble here being exalted. So again, sounds very familiar. Boast in your exaltation, your high position. Verse 12, we have the only other reference to destroy in the book. Again, arguably, uh, it's uh, substantially less impactful than things like the only other reference to double-minded man, but it's present nevertheless and possibly serving to direct our attention over from chapter 1 now to chapter 5, where James again and more aggressively speaks to the passing and fading of the rich man's wealth, which he addresses in chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, but here he's going to amplify it when he gets to chapter 5. He references it in chapter 1, amplifies it in chapter 5, which again brings up another possible thematic tie of chapter 1, chapter 4, chapter 5, um, as 4-9 speaks to mourning and crying and gloom. Chapter 5 opens with, come now you rich, cry, howling over your miseries. All these tie-ins and how he thinks about, how he speaks about the poor and the rich, which is then followed by, again, the, the severe treatment of the rich is then followed by the detailing once more, again, of the passing, the fading away of their wealth. And then we get to chapter one, uh, as again, as we saw in chapter one, verses 10 to 11. And then that brings us to chapter five, verses one through six, where James is plainly expressing the rich as unbelieving, worthy of severe rebuke on account of their wicked abuses and the debt they've accrued before God in these matters, which gives way to verses seven through 11 which is an overt reference back to believers. And with this, James's final great push to perseverance, which is framed with a view to Christ's return. And so what I want you to see there, again, things he's mentioned, 1, 9 through 11, an expectation um, uh, of, uh, for humility, a rebuking of the rich, a culminating expression of perseverance. In chapters 4 and 5, he's reintroducing the terminology, the thematic elements, and he's amplifying them. He's amplifying, rich, this is what you can expect. It's going to pass away. It's going to be destroyed. And then he gets to the righteous. Persevere. Persevere like Job persevered. And he develops it even further. And so I see a, a clear, not only association, but even an amplification that's all part of this larger view to how he thinks about rich, poor, believing, and unbelieving, and to frame that all with perseverance. And I know those details are a bit much. And it, it sometimes I've been thinking about this all week and I know what happens is I've been thinking about it and just, here we go. And it's a lot. And so let me summarize it in this way. Again, the end of chapter four through the beginning of chapter five, it mirrors and even amplifies what we see in our passage today. I want you, that's the easiest takeaway. Know that what he speaks of here, we're making a big deal of it. We're talking about it so much. We're developing this theme because it runs throughout the book and then it really gets amplified toward the end. So today we see the expectation for humility, the rebuke of the rich, and a final culminating expression of perseverance. 
This is what we're going to see again in the later sections of the book, just more comprehensively. So in view of the whole of the book, it appears that James is framing his reference to the poor and the humble as believers. That's kind of how he's developed his engagement of these persons. And that informs how he talks about how to walk, how to live, how to think, how to, how to persevere, how to pursue perfection and completion and full maturity, how to walk in the wisdom that comes from above, and then also how he frames the rich as blasphemously arrogant oppressors outside of the faith community. And so that needs to inform how we think about our passage. And so because chapter 1, verses um, 10 and 11 both introduce and give significant amount of attention to these comparisons. Again, I think it's wise to keep in mind how he continues to develop these matters throughout the book as a whole. And this will help us better appreciate what is, what is um, or what it is that he has called us to in this foundational section and uh, as a whole gives clear attention to perseverance by wisdom and the rewarding outcome thereof, which we'll see next week. Now that's the development of the, these two categorical identifications of rich and poor within the book of James. I think that's very important. I think from hermeneutics perspective, Frank would concur. Look at how it's developed within the book. And, but we also recognize that James is known for something. So he's known for a lot of things. He's James the just, James man of prayer, James the brother of our Lord, James who echoes the teachings of Jesus. So he's known to echo the teachings of Jesus, and I would argue that the common emphasis that Jesus puts on these two categories of persons was of a like nature to what we see in James as well. And while not exhaustive, we're going to consider a range of passages that demonstrate Jesus had a clear heart for the poor and recognized the difficulties and problems associated with the rich. So to begin with, we'll consider two occasions in which Jesus spoke of the nature and identity of his own public ministry, rooting it with a view to Isaiah chapter uh, 61. So first we see um, in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 21, Jesus is in the synagogue. He's in Nazareth. He opens the scroll and continues. And Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought, brought up, and, was his, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Then we get to Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 to 6, and here we have the context where John the Baptist is in prison. He wants affirmation. I've, I've literally, this is, my identity is bound up in preparing the way for Messiah. Are you the one or do we look for another? Now when John has been in prison, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for someone else? And Jesus answered and said to them, also re referencing back to Isaiah 61, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. So again, preaching the poor, excuse me, preaching the gospel to the poor. That was an important element of how Jesus wanted his public ministry to be understood, that he's declaring the good news to the poor. But do we necessarily have to conclude that this was an emphasis on the poor in a, a socioeconomic way? Or might it have been the poor in a spiritual way? 
How do we understand who these poor people are? Well, speaking broadly, as there are no shortage of examples to the contrary, it would appear to be both, a view to the naturally and spiritually poor. And a rather overt example of this could be argued in considering Luke and Matthew's respective accounts of the Beatitudes. So we read from Matthew's account this morning, but we're going to glance back first to Luke chapter 6, verses 20, and then his counterpart to the Beatitude of 620 to 24. So in Luke 6, we read, And turning his gaze toward his disciples, he began to say to them, Blessed, happy, fully satisfied in God are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And this was later contrasted with a rebuke or a woe, which gives us insight to the nature of the poor that he was speaking to. But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. So it's very clear. He's talking about the naturally poor, the naturally rich in this context. But then we go into Matthew chapter 5. Jesus states, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, to be clear, there's no special merit to being fiscally poor. I'm not encouraging everybody here to go and just give everything away so that you can be blessed and satisfied and that you can find special favor with God and that you can be among the righteous believing community. That's not what we're being commanded to. There's no special merit to just being poor for being poor's sake. However, the fiscally poor may have a more natural expectation of blessing from a compassionate God who delights in those who know how to look to him for their daily bread and sufficient clothing. And so when he commands, how do we pray, Lord? We'll pray, give us this day our daily bread. If you have a glut of bread in the pantry and you always have, and you always have an abundance, and you have so much that you have to pick through what you want today, asking for your daily bread is not a common disposition, is it? But when you lack and you're hungry and you're not sure and you have to look to your Heavenly Father to provide, asking for his daily provision strikes differently. And there's a natural association, the clothing. Don't be anxious for these things, but rather look to the lilies of the field. Those of us who have a, a closet full of selections, and what, what today? Do I have something that matches, something clean, something ironed? No, it's a, Lord, would you provide? I know you will because you clothe the lilies of the field. There's a different disposition and approach to how you think through things. Those who know what it's like to crave for hope and long for deliverance. Even so, again, it is not natural poverty that gives one standing before God. That's not the issue. It's those who are poor in spirit, those who are humbled in their soul and intimately know of their need for a redeemer. And it's not that the rich, though the wealthier or the affluent, inherently and always lack the sensitivity or capacity to respond in a like manner. It's just that it's that much more unnatural and even challenging for them because in having, it's harder to see where you lack. It's harder to see that you need to ask for daily bread and that you have to have confidence that he will clothe and adorn you and take care of you. There's a little bit of, I got this. I'm fine. I work hard. I have plenty. And as you'll see from Jesus, his, his engagement with the rich young ruler, sometimes even in seeing one's spiritual lack, there's still a great difficulty in forsaking the comforts and confidence that material affluence appears to offer. So again, there's no special merit to being poor, and there's no special fault or, or diminished standing for being affluent or, or wealthy or, or rich. It's just a matter of it changes and informs one's common disposition, which carries over to spiritual matters. And again, as we'll see, sometimes even for the affluent and seeing they're lacking and there's a heart, it's hard to let go of these things. The poor, it's easy because it's, their grip is so loose on it already. So again, it's a matter of a painful display with the rich young ruler 
as recorded in three synoptic gospels, and we'll walk through um, Matthew's copy or his uh, his uh, provision of this now. Matthew nineteen sixteen to twenty two, and behold, someone came to him and said, "Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life?" So he's he's pursuing a spiritual satisfaction in God, eternal life. And Jesus said to him, "Why are you asking me about what is good?" There's only one who is good, but if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Then he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not commit murder, or you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love the, your neighbors yourself. Sorry, I'm jumping in there. The young man said to him, all these things I've kept, what am I still lacking? That was a really great question. Now, it was set up very poorly. He hasn't kept these, obviously, not in the way that he should have. But it was a good question. What am I lacking? Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, whole, and satisfied, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when the young man heard the statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. So here in Matthew's account, the ruler expresses his lack In the other accounts, Jesus points this out to him. So we see in in Mark 10 and Luke 18, and looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, one thing you lack. And then when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. And I would qualify just for a moment here. How did Jesus look at him? Jesus loved him. It wasn't like, oh, you're one of those rich people. Ah, No regard for you. He had an affection for him. And it was not about what he did or did not have by way of material wealth. As again, there's no special merit and being rich or poor, but it was a matter of where his confidence and satisfaction was secured, a matter that revealed a spiritual lack for him complicated by material affluence or affluence, which is why Jesus was pressing him to confidence and satisfaction rooted in God, a confidence that's expressed by a willingness to hold the temporal things of this world with a loose hand. And the account continued with Jesus turning this engagement into a teaching opportunity for his disciples. And we see in verses 23 to 26, and Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, Then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, With people this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Now, you heard what Jesus said. It's hard. It's difficult for a rich man to accomplish the impossible. Because while this is a work of the Spirit of God, it is a work that is exercised through humility, through repentance and faith. And a rich man more naturally struggles with such matters because of their abundance of resources and means. And Jesus was not calling upon this young man to embrace a life of of fiscal poverty, but to see the reality of his spiritual impoverishment that he might find satisfaction, hope, and help in nothing short of the Redeemer. And while I have more text, I'd like to walk us through, we can pause here and recognize very plainly why Jesus and later James uses this language of of humble means and poverty to express a truly blessed disposition before God. And what was so tragic is, especially in this historic context, especially as the disciples, well, who can be saved? Well, in the historic context, uh, John MacArthur draws out the fact that the Jews believed that with alms, a man purchased salvation as recorded in the Talmud. So the more wealth one had, the more alms he could offer, thus purchasing redemption. And while not of the same nature, this is an egregious traps that continue to influence many people's thinking today, too, that 
the affluence isn't the problem. Affluence actually accomplishes things that it, it was never designed to accomplish. So what a striking contrast that James provides in our passage is he effectively says the rich man's wealth, his works, and his riches will hold no lasting value. They don't, they don't give any special merit to eternal things, but they and the rich man alike will pass away. They will not last. One more example from Jesus' public ministry comes in Luke 16. Luke 16, verses 19 to 31. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. But a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now it happened that the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he's being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm fixed so that you who wish to come over here, um, so that those who wish to come over from here to you are not able and none may cross over from there to us. And he said, then I'm asking for you, uh, then I'm asking you, father, that you send him to my father's house for I have five brothers in order that they may be, that he may warn them so they might not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Now, it's a familiar account. We could argue, and, and I'll leave this to um, the, the hermeneutical sphere of parable, historical account. Right now, we're putting that on the table. It's a very familiar um, uh, point of illustration that Jesus is providing. And for some, there, there may be a danger here in viewing this as, ah, the great reversal of fortunes. That's what this is really about. That's what James talks the way he does. And that's what Jesus does. Because when it's all said and done, it all just gets reversed. And the, the, the happy are sad and the sad are happy. And it's a, in the afterlife, it all gets turned on its head. The poor man is finally esteemed. The rich man suffers. But don't miss an absolutely critical element to what separates these two men. There's a great divide, and the rich man knows that his fate was sealed in his unbelief. It was unbelief. It wasn't the fact he was wealthy, which is why he petitions that Lazarus be sent to his family to warn them. He doesn't say, go tell, go tell Lazarus to make sure they're all poor. Go tell Lazarus to make sure they go sell everything. They go live in the gate so they can suffer now and enjoy the sweet things later. That, it's go that they might believe. And even more importantly, why he is told the testimony of the scriptures are sufficient for them, sufficient for them to hear and to believe. It was not wealth that subjected this man to eternal torment, not even his gross negligence of one in need. It was his unbelief, which also undoubtedly contributed to his neglecting one so desperately in need, especially from the vantage point of James, where faith takes action. But once more, the common pattern is that wealth and riches have the illusion of great blessing. There are contexts in which they are great blessings, but they often have the illusion of great blessing when in reality they are often the most terrible of obstructions. But not always. 
We have precious examples of wealthy persons generously serving fellow believers with sincerity of heart. And, and we have accounts of others coming to faith. A, a precious example of this is also found in Luke, where we read of Zacchaeus being engaged by Jesus, who stated to him in Luke 19.10, Today salvation has come to this house, because he, too, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So it's, it's not about one's socioeconomic status. And neither Jesus or James frame the rich or fluent as life's villains or the antithesis to those who are welcome to the kingdom of God. No, but James clearly expresses what is broadly and all too commonly true that the rich do not have a sensitivity or due regard for the things of the Lord, having found an abundance of comfort, satisfaction, and hope in the temporal. So it's not especially strange that he expresses in our passage, but the brother of humble circumstances is to boast in his high position. And the rich man is to boast in his humiliation because like flowering grass, he will pass away. So what we see with this is that in this engagement of persevering, which is the the driving focus of this section in chapter one of James, James provides the command that the poor, those of humble circumstances are to boast in their high position. And then he provides a counterpart command that the rich are to boast in their humiliation. The one being esteemed, the other made low. Now, in one sense, uh, these matters, the, these commands, they're, they're quite plain. We can look at them at face value and say, I, I follow what he's saying. I can understand one's esteemed, one made low, boasting in both contexts. It's easy to hear, easy to understand, but there's still some challenges here. And we've taken much time to lay foundations on which we can now quickly build clear arguments. I wasn't just belaboring the matters of rich and poor to give you kind of an interesting perspective on Jesus and James and how the New Testament talks about these things and how do we reconcile that with the blessings that we expect of the, of the Psalm 1 man. And that's not the issue. It's the disposition they often reflect and that James and Jesus build on that, the, the disposition of having confidence or looking to the Lord for your confidence. But first, we need to make sure that we correctly appreciate the, the provided command of boasting, particularly as it's not something that's often framed as a, a proper course of conduct. Uh, it's not that um, it's really um, in bad taste to go in life boasting. It's, we would be corrected, admonished for that, right? To the, um, we say that we even recognize that James, in other contexts, even within the book, he rebukes boasting and its more common expression of arrogance and pride. So there's, I know college football season's already started, and there's a measure of of boasting that will cloud people's language. And there's just this excitement. And sometimes there's a boasting in, in, in somebody's uh, personal success. And there's this, and sometimes we're like, well, we can appreciate that in one regard, but don't go too far. Or the, the arrogance that can come through. Now, that's definitely a problem. And yet here James is saying boast and not just, hey, there's grounds for boasting. He's saying, I'm commanding you to boast. And a clear element that has to be recognized here is that this is this context unambiguously frames the command to boast with a view to humility, which is kind of contrary to boasting, isn't it? But that's the nature of the boasting here that we've been commanded to with a view to humility. We see this plainly with the language of the brother of humble circumstances and the humiliation of the rich. So again, the boasting is rooted in and associated with humility. So how do the humble and the humiliated boast? Well, these are commands that would appear to be inherently contradictory, and it would, be, it would be if one were boasting in themselves. However, the poor are boasting in their high or elevated position, not in the sense of someone running for being the, the local or even regional pauper and bragging in their securing this lowly position. Hey, look, I'm the, I'm the, I'm the 
I'm the poorest poor guy. Woo, poor guy. No, he's not saying that. He's not boasting in his high elevated disposition of being poor. Rather, it's the lowly position as he stands before the Lord and the confidence that produces in him in a way that, again, we've observed the range of passages that we've walked through today. Those who have seen and, and understand their inherent spiritual poverty, that they're utterly lacking. They, they come to God as poor in spirit and in such are assured the kingdom of God. That's grounds for high standing. And we boast in that. We rejoice in that. We make much of that. There are those who came to Christ in humility like a short tax collector climbing a tree with the hope of seeing Jesus and have in turn been embraced by him as they express faith and repentance. A faith and repentance that generally disassociates one's former affection and confidence in material things, no matter how much they may or may not have. Therefore, this is a boasting in Christ, just as Paul has plainly called us to in 1 Corinthians chapter, 20, or verse, chapter 1, verses 26 to 31 where he states, For consider your calling, brothers, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, nor many mighty, nor many noble. This is a lowly group. The majority of the identified humble in faith, those who have submitted in faith and repentance, it's a lowly group. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not so that he may abolish the things that are, so that no flesh may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, just as is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's the nature of the humble disposition of boasting. And the language of this exhortation was not original with Paul, but appears to be rooted in Jeremiah chapter 9, where we read, Thus says Yahweh, let not a wise man boast in his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not a rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am Yahweh who shows loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares Yahweh. So again, while boasting might naturally come to those of means, those who are affluent, those who are successful, be it on account of their intellect, their abilities, their resources, their wealth, it is to be righteously expressed through nothing short of Christ. That is the source and object and nature of our boasting. And it's those natural areas of boasting that put one in danger of detracting one's attention from where their boasting must be centered. So it's, it is tough to have a lot because we tend to look to ourselves when we're to solely look to Christ, which again is likely why there's a clear measure of deference to the poor throughout James because for them, the natural disposition is toward humility over arrogance, a looking to God for provision and care. And it is this humble disposition that also carries over to one's need and persevering too, which is what he's driving at. Who's going to persevere well? The one that looks to the source and the means of perseverance, who cries to God for wisdom to negotiate the, the necessary trials of this life. That's the one that will persevere well. The one that boasts in God, not in himself. They know of their need for God's sustaining care and that he generously supplies it. This, therefore, is how humiliation can be something to boast in. When it separates our confidence and joy and satisfaction of focus from the lesser to the greater. When one sees that the fleeting nature of, this, of their possessions, particularly by means of trials, directs their attention to their own need of wisdom so they might too persevere. And in such hum humble circumstances, we find that one is in need, uh, that one is indeed in an elevated position. So again, made low, 
naturally so, looking to Christ, humble circumstances, satisfied in Christ, therefore an elevated position. But what of the rich man? Well, it would appear that their path to boasting is, I would say, less obvious. This was the single part of the passage that, that, would, that just got me. I couldn't get past this until last night after dinner. So I credit Noah. He fixed dinner last night, and it just opened the eyes to see this more plainly. But it would appear that their path, again, in boasting is less obvious, particularly given the language of this passage. And so I've already made the argument, and not just because I came to a conclusion I needed to support it, but because I saw the development of the argument and therefore came to a conclusion that the, that the rich, broadly speaking, are usually the unbelieving community, especially in James, how he talks about them. Even how he talks about him in verse 10 to 11, they're fading, they're passing away. That's not comforting good language. That's not the language we want for ourselves. And yet he's commanded them to boast. And I, I was struggling with that. And I had to concede that, okay, it's probably a barb with, yeah, boast, because this is as good as it gets. And James can be pretty sharp sometimes. He's a, he's a tough man. I recognize that. But I see it a little bit differently now. I see it as a re- potentially restorative rebuke that you're boasting. This means of boasting will be the means by which you can have true grounds for boasting. So let's, let's walk through this. It would seem for them that boasting is an even greater contradiction. They're being made low and experiencing the loss of works and seemingly themselves. So again, it's not just they lose their stuff. They are lost in this. However, it could again be that their boasting is most fitting as it drives them again to a restored focus and righteous dependence upon the lasting. That when they view, I have to boast in humiliation, it's because everything else is so much lesser, I have to turn to Christ. That is unless James is using the category of the rich in a like manner again as he does throughout the rest of the letter, broadly categorizing them as unbelieving, arrogant, and hostile to God's people. In which case, again, these examples of the poor and the rich parallel what he said throughout the book with negative and positive examples. Um, we've seen that in the last section. We saw the, the one who cries out for wisdom and then the double-minded man. And he gives a lot of attention to the double-minded man. Here it's attention to the humble, and he doesn't say much about him, and then he gives a lot of attention to the rich, those who are rebuked. The next section talks about the chief reward of perseverance, the crown of life, and then he gives more attention to those who pursue death. And so we see this pattern, this pattern. In each one of those, there's that peculiar command the peculiar command to, we saw it in the last section, it was um, uh, the, he is to expect that he will receive nothing. How's that a command? How, why, why is he given that imperative? I think it was to drive, drive him to restorative repentance. And I think that's what he's doing here. So while it would appear that the rich would have their, the natural means to persevere, it's these persons that James will go on to state will suffer loss and who ultimately fade away. And that's, again, quite a contrast to the expected and necessary perseverance that's been developed throughout this. He is giving them the antithesis to perseverance. You will fade away, you will disappear, you will be gone. So I think he's provoking them. They are not enduring. They're passing away, they're fading. Therefore, as they naturally stand, the rich are in their own way closely identified with the double-minded man and all their ways unstable, receiving nothing, because while they may have much, at this time they lose everything and to no enduring advantage. But again, remember... This is not and never has been an indictment against being wealthy in its own right, but the natural and extremely compelling dangers that accompany wealth, a separation from dependence upon God and an arrogant effort to persevere in one's strength. And yet James has called upon them to boast. 
And so what I think he's doing, if it was all just about rich and poor, then they're just doomed. But if it's not about just rich and poor, but one's disposition that naturally accompanies that, then he's throwing them something to provoke them to be a change of disposition so that they might join the humble, be it if they're rich or poor, they might have that humble disposition. And so James has called upon them to boast, possibly because this may well be the means by which the rich would be delivered from their own inherent dangers by, by, by way of being made low and in such looking to the Lord for his necessary provisions of wisdom for a true perseverance, which they utterly lack. But if the rich man does not heed this command to boast by putting himself in the place of being made low and humble so that he might be elevated to, by God, then James is clear what he is to expect. He, is, he will be like flowering grass that passes away. He states, for the sun rises with a scorching heat and withers the grass and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too, the rich man, not just his possessions, so too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Let that strike you in the context of perseverance. This is not a sidebar. That's why you, get, you should be frustrated when you're reading a commentator, study Bible or other words. It's like, well, James is going to come back to his subject. You have to view it in view of perseverance. And when you're viewing the fact that he's been cultivating the necessity, the value, and the means of persevering, and then he uses languages like, they will fade away. It's a flag. It's a war. This is the antithesis to what we're working on. And it should provoke them to forsake their natural disposition and pursue the humble disposition. Now, while possibly alluding to the various passages, it's most likely that James has view to Isaiah chapter 40, um, 40 verses uh, 6 through 8 in mind here where the prophet compares all flesh to flower and grass and its temporal standing compared to the enduring word of God, which again has that context of temporal and enduring. He's drawing on it. It's a view to that which will and will not last. It's a view to perseverance or a failure to persevere. And in this, James, again, I think he's making a rather emphatic expression of the unrighteous man whose confidence is secured in that which has no means of enduring, and ultimately neither does he, because the rich man himself is included in this illustration. It's not just his works and treasures that fade away. Again, so too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. And with this, we see a pattern that will continue in the next week. I've already alluded to it, but we're going to see a pattern that I would say, again, this is why structure matters. This is why we give attention to these things. And so we, we saw it last week, we saw it this week, we're going to see it next week. So we saw the double-minded, unstable man is like the wind, wind-driven waters. He's unstable in all his ways. He will not persevere. He doesn't have the means to. He, he shouldn't even expect that he will. Then we have the arrogantly wealthy man, chases his ambitious plans, and is like the, the shriveling glory of grass. And next we'll see that the man who yields to his own carnal temptations seeks not the reward of life, but the sure outcome of death. And so we're seeing these uh, negative examples, but they're all commanded to do something. And that, again, that should puzzle you. Why are they commanded to do something? And why specifically are they commanded to do something in the context of perseverance? I think it's, again, a restorative rebuke. This is how you're going to be delivered to a position that you also might persevere. Do you want to be the double-minded man that the guarantee is that you'll receive nothing? Uh, no, I don't. Then do the command to seek or to ask, to ask in faith. Do you want to be the man that, that shrivels away and amounts to nothing? No, I don't. Well, then have a humble confidence in the Lord. Do you want to be the one that pursues death or achieves the crown of life? Well, that's pretty clear. Then do this. There's restorative rebuke in these commands. 
Each of these persons, again, they lack necessary perseverance to please God and enjoy the blessed condition of being perfect, complete, lacking in nothing, and being raised up and ultimately receiving the crown of life, which is, again, why they need these commands. They're not just counterpoints. That would make sense. I'm perfectly fine with that. Uh, it's like the Luke 6 Beatitudes. Blessed are the, the poor and then woe to the rich. That would work. But he gives them commands and a view and a context to perseverance. So once more, we have clear commands, this time two commands that are bundled into one, both centered on boasting. The brother of humble circumstances is to boast in his high position. The rich man is to boast in his humiliation. And again, how do we understand these commands? First, we recognize there's a larger context that James is developing here, and it's speaking to the matter of perseverance in the midst of trials. The righteous man, the faithful man, is a persevering man. And as we've seen, he's, a perse he's persevering with joy, he's persevering with wisdom, and now he's persevering with humility. That's, what, that's why we have the commands that we have to, to boast in our humility, and it's why they have the commands they do, I would argue, to drive them to the place where they'll submit to the original commands to the clear, faithful believer. And it's a humility that naturally, uh, this humility that we have here, the, the persevering with humility, it's a humility that naturally befits the poor. Not, again, because poverty is equated with righteousness. There's, there's plenty of people that are poor that are terrible people. Again, if you want good stories, I did do something before I did this. A lot of people are terrible, the rich, the poor, and everybody between. But with it, it has the disposition in that condition to look beyond oneself and put oneself in a humble dependence upon another. That's the natural disposition of the humble of the poor. By contrast, again, it is difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom. As broadly, uh, and, and as broadly as he speaks to the poor, so also James speaks to the wealthy. And, and here he commands them to do that which is unnatural to them and beyond what they will choose to do in their arrogant unbelief, a condition that if remained in, it will ruin them. They will fade, they will perish, they will not persevere. They will fail to persevere having a confidence in what and that which withers as quickly as a flower in the scorching sun. But in this, they not only lose their work and possessions, but themselves too. And this is a sobering element to James's development of perseverance, but it's one of the most tangible expressions of it too, especially as everybody here, everybody here somewhere on the spectrum of humble circumstances to riches. And that's just the, the human experience. But I would argue, more specifically, everyone here in terms of history and standing in the world, we fall in the rich category. Nobody here stuck their thumb out to get a ride to church. Nobody had to walk to church. Nobody had to hope they could find clothes. Nobody uh, lacked. They probably didn't go without this morning if you wanted something. And if you did want something, you probably had a lot of things to pick from. So be warned. And while humble circumstances and poverty will not inherently put one in right standing with God, being wealthy, which again, broadly, categorically, is all of us here, it makes it that much more difficult to express our proper dependence and to boast in the way that James has called us to so that we might persevere well. And if we find our confidence in anything less than the Lord, we will not persevere well. We we are subject to the threats and dangers that James expresses. And that might sound a bit, and that might sound disappointing but if that's all it sounds like, uh, well, boy, we're going to miss out on something, then, then I wasn't clear, because it's not simply disappointing. It is deadly. We are called to persevere, and that is not an encouragement or suggestion or otherwise. It is the forfeiting not only of joy, but the crown of life, which is what he's driving us to next week. And so we, 
We not only wrestle to put the pieces of a passage together, not just say, oh, people struggle with this and we want to understand it. We want big understandings and small understandings, but we wrestle to put them to action. And that's where James is going to leave us today. And that means boasting. Boasting, expressing celebratory pride in our humble state, knowing that in such a lowly condition, we will persevere by the Spirit of God's help, by securing wisdom, by counting it all joy. We will persevere. And that in persevering, we will accomplish or it will accomplish its perfect and completing work. So we will be made like Christ. He will finish this work to include the perfecting and completing work of standing approved before God, which is where he's driving us to next week. It's not just, hey, do your best. Crown of life's at the end if you make it. No, it's the one who's found approved. You want to be approved? Consider it all joy. You want to be approved? Ask for wisdom and ask in faith. You want to be approved? Boast in your humility. That's where James is driving us. And again, it's not about socioeconomic things, but if it was, we are in a real, we're in a spot because we're not lacking in the same way that the poor did. And so we need to all the more, Lord, give us a humble disposition that we might persevere in a way that pleases you. All right, let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Lord, we thank you that You've provided us example after example of those who have run their race well. And it wasn't an inevitable outcome. It wasn't that they gave a a profession of faith, a testimony, that they had some big moment of change in their life and that, well, now the inevitable is set in motion. But it's because the Spirit of God was at work in the heart and at work in the heart in such a way as to mature Christ, to bring them to perfection and completion, by means of persevering. And that's what you expect of your people. You expect for us to be a persevering people. You expect for us to to bear up under trials. And and we do that by calling out and pleading to you uh, for wisdom. We do so in faith. But we also do, as we've been commanded here, to to boast in our humility, to, to boast in our lowly circumstances. And that can have its challenges because it's when we're brought low that we we tend to struggle and it and demonstrates how much of an affection and confidence and desire for the temporal things that we really do have. And it also is difficult because we, we lack so little in terms of uh, the, the experiences of this world. And so Lord, would you help us? Would you help us to be submitted to you in, in righteous obedience, to boast not in our uh, great achievements, to not boast in what we've, what we've done and what we can do or how we can Uh, direct our resources and funds. All that's important. We want to steward them well, but to boast in our humility. And again, and to have a view to when when we do walk with a measure of of affluency and and much, may we also boast in our humble disposition, always being brought low. Not because it's, it's a matter of, we'll just go give everything away and that cures it. It doesn't cure anything. It's the disposition, the standing, the confidence of one before you. And so Lord, help us. Help us to remain lowly before you as you elevate the humble. And Lord, you will give us the grace in these things to persevere. And that's what we want to have a view to. And so we thank you that even as we just even take a peek at what's to come next week, that there's the prospect, the reality that if we, if we persevere well, that we, we can stand approved before you. And standing approved before you, we are guaranteed the crown of life. And so we give thanks to you, Lord recognizing that you've accomplished these things and asking that you'll find us faithful. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.